Hi, Natalie. Hi, Rob. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. Thank you. Let's talk about uh, this Reddit post that you you saw. Tell us. Tell me about that. There is a. I don't know anything about Reddit. Let me just start by saying that I am a creeper on Reddit, and I just started creeping on it. I don't have an account. I don't know what to do. I don't know anything about it except to just read other people's posts. And so I found the Pilates community post, uh, community channel. Is that even what it's called? Anyway, <laughs> the place where you click on and everything is about Pilates. I was there <laughs> creeping. And um, someone wrote in and was asking the community, how do you keep things fresh in terms of your teaching practice, your programming? And one person wrote in a response that I felt was just absolutely gold. And this person said, keep in mind that Pilates is training, not entertainment. And that has stuck with me. And I've shared it with my Pilates teacher friends. And I wish that I could take credit for it. And I want to share it with Heath because I think Heath would love it. I just, it just, it's exciting to me because it has so many implications for how we go about keeping up with our practice. It, it's a value of mine that I think is, I didn't even know I had until this person wrote it and I read it. And it's just like, I'm so excited just even thinking about it because that's what I want to adopt as my teaching philosophy is that Pilates is training, not entertainment. I think that's a good philosophy, not just for me as the, an instructor, but also for my clients and how it can benefit my clients if I think that way. Yeah. What do you think? I'm so with you. Uh, I think there's a little bit of nuance in there, which I'd, I'll, you know, I'd like to explore in a moment. But yeah, I think this is something that I got confused with a lot when I was first teaching, that I thought it was my job to to entertain, uh, and I felt, you know, like people needed to have fun in the class, uh, and I angsted about my playlists and, you know thought about themes for the classes and all of that stuff. Uh, whereas now I really see it as, well, if I'm not there to entertain people, I'm there to help them achieve a result. Like they come to, they don't come to Pilates because they want entertainment. I mean, if they wanted entertainment, they'd go to a nightclub or watch Netflix or go to dinner, you know, uh, much more entertaining in my view <laughs> than, than yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, so I so I think you know people come to Pilates because they want a result, and the result might be strength, flexibility, better mental health, lose weight, lose their back pain, be able to get on the floor and play with their grandkids, whatever it might be, or all of the above. But yeah, and so I think it, the nuance comes in a little bit where it's like, well, it only works if you do it. So I think you'd need to make it. Uh, attractive to people, you know, that's part of our job because like, let's face it, they could just work out on their lounge room floor at home un without supervision and probably get similar results, except they wouldn't because most people just won't do it. They won't stick with it. So I think it is our job. It is part of our job or a big part of our job to make the exercise attractive, you know, to make people want to come. Um, and I think it's easy to confuse that with making it entertaining. And I, I think there's a there's a subtle but important distinction there. It's like it might not be entertaining, but you might love it. You know, it's like I love going for a run. Every time when I'm running, I'm like this fucking sucks. You know, this I hurt. Like my legs are uncomfortable. Like I'm hot. I'm sweating. I all I'm thinking is like how long till I can stop, right? But as soon as I stop, I feel amazing. And all I can think about like that is like, oh, tomorrow's a running day. That's awesome. I get to run. But it's like the actual activity itself is like not in any way fun for me. So I think, I think, and I think some of the most rewarding things in life are not all of the most rewarding things in life are generally not fun. Like if you think about people who've had kids, right? Not freaking fun, you know, or entertaining, right? but, but <laughs> unbelievably rewarding. You know, most people say like the most meaningful thing they've done in their life is is raise their kids. You know, um, but at you know. I reckon the, the the fun factor 
entertaining factor for me with kids is like, you know, less than 1% of the time. I'm like, oh, this is so much fun. This is awesome. It's like usually it's like, oh, my God, I've cleaned doing the dishes again after I did this <laughs> minutes ago. Um, uh, yeah, so I think there's that distinction there. Uh, I think we do need to make it attractive, but, uh, but that's not the same as fun. But I think the other thing that 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 I've certainly experienced is making it entertaining for myself. Right. So I've taught this class, you know, a hundred times. I'm bored, right? And I want to make it entertaining for me. And and I just think, well, I don't really see any nuance there. I think that's like, well, no. It's like, well, if I'm flying, you know, on a seven three seven, I don't give a shit if the pilot's fucking bored. You know, I don't want him to start doing barrel rolls and, you know, <laughs> loop the loop or whatever. <laughs> like, I just want to go straight from A to B, you know, in the calmest air possible. Um, and so it's like whether the pilot's bored or not has got nothing to do with nothing. Uh, and same with my dentist. I'm going to the dentist today because I cracked a tooth. It's like, I don't want a creative dentist, you know. <laughs> I want someone who's done a thousand crowns and this is crown number a thousand and one and it's going to be exactly like the previous one thousand, you know? Yeah, I I hear what you're saying and I agree with you. There is absolutely nuance in it. I think there's also room, uh, I, I think, what did what did you say that to, what was the word that you used? Uh, that it's an important to keep exercises. Did you say attractive? Think, what yeah, was the term Attractive. I think it's, it's, it's like, it's, I don't know if attractive is even the right word, but I think it's our job to help people do, you know, keep doing it. Right. Yeah. So I think, I guess maybe the, the word that I would use, the words that I would use are, I think there's a place for novelty and variety. There is a place for that. Um, there's a reason why I am not a teacher that just teaches the same exercises in the same order all the time. I, I don't do that. I know that some people do and it works for them and it works for those clients and that's not what we're talking about. But for those instructors and most of the instructors that I know, all of the instructors that I know incorporate some kind of novelty and variety into their programming. And I think that's an excellent idea. But I think where we cross the line is where instructors start to feel the pressure of coming up with a completely new program every single class. Well, I think, I think where, I mean, that is probably, I would say it's probably the top pain point that I hear from instructors is programming. I spend so many hours each week programming and I'm always looking for fresh inspiration and ideas. I'm scrolling through social media for hours looking for ideas and yeah, it's like, well, why do you need all of these new programs every week? What's wrong with the program we talked last taught last week? Yeah, the the pressure that people put on themselves to create new programming is a huge business in the Pilates industry. It's a sub business in the Pilates industry where people make products, right? Selling programming, uh, giving giving people programming ideas. So yeah, I I think it's also a source of burnout. And I was thinking about what you just said, where if you do change things, you can't deny that part of the reason why you're doing that is for your own self-care, for your own entertainment. And I agree with you because there have been times like in the pandemic I'm thinking of where everything was online and my clients didn't have the props they needed because they're working out in their own home. And I just went bananas. I just got nutty thinking. Like I finally begged them, please, please go out there and get a magic circle. Please go out there and get some hand weights because I cannot do mat class without anything anymore. Um, but I think, so there's, there's this, I feel like there's this continuum where you want to be able to create some variety and novelty for yourself. That's self-care. And on the other part of, on the other side of the spectrum is the idea where you're putting so much pressure on yourself for creating new programming that it, it leads to burnout. Like it's too much, it's too much mental load to, have to come up with a new program all the time. And I want to also say that if you're doing that, it's also, I, I would argue that it's not beneficial for your clients as well. So would you, yeah. like, why, why do you think it's not beneficial to the clients? It's not beneficial for the clients because it never gives them an opportunity to return to an exercise that, that you would introduce to them and to practice it and get better at it, right? So for instance, like if I... 
uh, were to teach snake, which is a tough exercise. I had to do some today for uh, for some video content that I was creating. And, you know, snake is on two sides, right? So I was doing this recording where I would do one side of kneeling sidearms and then I would say to the camera, okay, now you turn around and do the other side. I'm going to stay facing the camera so that in case you need to see me, you can see me still facing the camera. And then when it came to snake and twist and I'm like, uh-uh, I need to do the other side because I'm tired on this yeah. side and I have to do the other side. So, you hey, know, if just, I'm teaching I'm, snake- I'm sorry to jump in there, but I mean, you probably already know this life hack, but when you're filming content, if you position the camera so the camera can't see the springs, you can put on whatever number of springs you want and no one knows the difference. <laughs> yeah. I, I do it for online testing too. <laughs> like, I no, you don't have, you can't test me on what the spring tension is because you can't see my springs. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry for interrupting you. So you were, you were, swi- yeah, okay. you were switching, switching sides with Snake. I was switching sides with Snake because Snake is hard. But my point with Snake is that when you introduce an exercise to your clients in you know, on a certain day, and especially for exercises that are complicated, don't make that the one and only time that they're going to practice that exercise. Like, because not everybody, if you're teaching, and uh, not even if you're teaching an open level class, if you're teaching any kind of class, very likely the general population is not going to nail snake on the first goal you're gonna this is pilates is a lifelong practice so we want to give people the opportunity to consistently practice something give them little bits and pieces on a regular basis that's my point with if you keep things fresh all the time um, you run the risk of your clients never having the opportunity to progress or to see for themselves that they've progressed. I think that's such a good point. And actually what you what what you reminded me of as you said that is that what we know about behavior change psychology and this is in the literature on exercise adherence. You know, when people start a new exercise program or a weight loss program or whatever, you know, some people stick with it and other people don't stick with it. And, you know, what are the patterns that differentiate between people who do stick with it and don't stick with it? And what the literature pretty clearly shows is that at the beginning of starting a new, say, exercise program, we need, we, we benefit more from extrinsic motivation. So, you know, structure, you know, written down goals, you know, high fives from the instructor, you know, that kind of thing um, makes, you know, booking into class and having a late fee if I don't show or whatever, all of those things make it more likely that I'm going to stick with it for the first few weeks. But then for the pe- for people to stick to it long-term, the only people who stick with stuff long-term are people for whom the motivation becomes intrinsic. And intrinsic motivation doesn't just mean it comes from within you. It means it's inherent in the task. So you come to not, it's not like you've set yourself like, uh, you know, and, but you may do this, like you may set yourself, oh, I've got a goal of going, attending X number of classes or whatever, or losing this amount of weight or doing this number of push-ups, or you might set yourself a goal like that but actually you take pleasure in the activity itself, right? So like like I do with running, right? So I, I mean, I kind of hate it, but I love it at the same time. And if I don't run, I feel like I really miss it. You know, it's like <laughs> I've got a tooth missing or something. It's it, there's, there's just a, there's, there's a gap there for me. And and I think everybody, you know, listening has had this experience with, with exercise at some point, probably with Pilates, where you, you just – love doing it and you you even if it didn't make you stronger you probably would do it you know although getting stronger isn't you know a very exciting part of it for for most of us but i think so we have to shift from that extrinsic motivation to the intrinsic motivation so at the beginning for new beginners i think you know a lot of structure a lot of goal setting a lot of guidance about when you should come back and all of that stuff is really valuable to to keep people adhering to the exercise but at, but for for people who've been with you for a while, like more than a few weeks, we need to shift to creating a more like inner rewarding inner experience for people when they exercise. Now, a lot of that is like you say, to do with like just feeling the reward of mastery. You know, it's inherently rewarding to humans to feel like we're just getting really good at doing this thing. Like, oh, I can do an extra rep now, or I can lift my leg and two inches higher this week, or I can balance for another 10 seconds this week. All of those things are inherently rewarding and you don't get that A to B comparison unless you keep doing the same thing week after week after week and notice the difference, right? 
I mean, so that's one thing. But then just like the the routine itself, you know, is what draws you. It's like none of us, I think, would say, I love brushing my teeth. It's like an inherently rewarding activity. But I think most of us, if we don't brush our teeth and go to bed, we'll be lying there going, oh, I feel really bad because I haven't brushed my teeth, right? I've got to get up and brush my teeth. And it's like, it's just because it's so habituated, we've just done it so many times at the same time of the day that it's just like, there's like a need to, to perform that routine now. It's an automated habit. And so I think that routinization is really valuable in creating an intrinsic motivation as well, because routines are calming for us and they help us, you know, get centered. I mean, you've said this previously that, you know, routine is, and I, I, I mean, there's literature on this as well, that athletes, uh, you know, we all see athletes have their little rituals, right? So the tennis player, you know, bounces the ball a specific number of times with the specific, you know, cadence before the, they serve or the golfer, you know, adjust their feet in the specific same way just before they take the swing. The power lifter, you know, sets up for the bar exactly the same way. They all have these, we all have these little rituals. Athletes have these little rituals that they do. And actually these rituals enhance performance. They enhance performance, not because of any inherent thing about like bouncing the ball three times in rapid succession, but it's just because it's a ritual. It brings you into a sort of an associative state of being ready to play and ready to perform into a high performance state. So basically just, it's a mental anchor that brings you into a certain state. And so I think, you know, that's a, that's a big argument in favor of routine and, and keeping things the same. And maybe if we keep chopping things up all the time and feeling like we need to, or more about like, if we feel like it, it's our job as instructors to entertain our long-term clients, actually, I think we're doing them a disservice because we're treating them as if they need external motivation. You know, whereas in reality, I think they're much better off if we can provide an environment where they can find intrinsic motivation. Yeah. Is that, I mean, do you consciously think about that? Because that pretty much is what I got from what you said. Um, do I consciously think yeah. about that? I do now, now that you said okay. it. <laughs> I agree with you. I totally agree with you. I do think that for, for most human beings, um, there is always typically a period of there has to be some external reward before the internal rewards happen. Oftentimes you get these superstar humans who just are naturally very superstars, but most human beings, they need some sort of external force. I think it, at least that's what I was taught dinosaur years ago, back in psychology 101. Mm. Um, what I was thinking about when you're talking about uh, routines and rituals is I have a ritual every morning when I step, when I sit up uh, off the bed and when I lie down. So it is, it's a way for me to like get ready for my day and it's a way for me to go to sleep. And I do it without fail every single day of my life. It's just how it is. It's just like brushing my teeth. Yeah, you're right. You know, if there's this value to, you know, to routine and the value being, twofold at least the first first element being that there's you can do a before and after comparison or an overtime comparison if you keep doing this if you keep doing push-ups every week you'll notice that you can do more push-ups right but if you do push-ups once and then never do them again well you don't know if you got stronger or not um because now you can do three snakes but you've never done snake before so you didn't know how many snakes you could do a month ago so you don't know if you're better or worse than you were um so there's that and then the second thing is the kind of the calming centering kind of just habituating the behavior, you know, and you come to crave, we come to crave those routines that we, you know, regularly uh, perform, not in a way that we crave something pleasurable, but just like it's, it's just an essential element of the day. It's like you can't go through your day without doing that thing. And it's like, wouldn't it be amazing if we could get our clients to that place where it's like they can't go through their day without coming to Pilates? you know, at 6 p.m. on a Tuesday, because that's the routine, you know. So I think, yeah, the more the more we can ritualize and routinize the the sessions, the better, in my view. Um, but I don't think that's completely incompatible, like you say, with a little bit of variety, a little bit of novelty. So where do you think the place of novelty and variety, you know, resides? I would love, if any listeners have their own opinion, I would love to hear it. My general rule of thumb is 80-20. I feel like 80-20 is a good rule for a lot of things. 
80% consistent and regular, 20% novel is the way that I like to do it. So for instance, if we're looking at a 45 or 50 minute program, and if you tend to, like me, create your program in clusters or blocks of exercises, let's say we have four blocks or four clusters, I'd have three the same and one maybe something new or uh, four the same and I just rearrange them. There's plenty of ways to create novelty and to create creativity. Um, but 80-20 is kind of the way that I go because I feel like, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about, I have a friend who is a Pilates teacher and she will say herself that her source of angst and burnout has to do with keeping things fresh. She feels like it's really important to keep things fresh because she has in the past taught her client something new and the client gets incredibly excited and joyful at learning something new. I think that's different than creating a whole new program every time. I think clients do like learning new things, but I think if you created a whole new program and threw new things at them all the time, that would be incredibly destabilizing. So um, like you were saying, having consistency and rituals and um, regularity in things is really comforting to most human beings to have habits but having that little bit of novelty keeps things spicy enough. I think that's just the way that um, that's that's been my experience. Because I think that if you were to, if I were to think about all of my regular clients, the ones who I've been working with for a long time now, and they continue to come to my class, a lot of the joy for them comes from being able to nail snake being able to nail Russian splits, being able to see that they've gone from four full push-ups to 15 full push-ups. That doesn't happen when you create fresh programs all the time. It happens when you give people the space and time to practice a skill regularly. Um, but then what keeps things interesting is to throw in a prop or throw in a brand new exercise. And typically what I do, I make a really big deal about it. Um, just recently, I taught my hospital class rocking. I hate rocking. Do you, do you know rocking on the mat? Oh, I freaking hide it. <laughs> I hate rocking. But um, I wanted to... At least it's not as bad as, a, not as, bad as the reformer version. Yeah. Yeah, the reformer version. I mean, the reformer version is so bad. We took it out of our curriculum. That's how bad it is, folks. Um, yeah, I wanted. I, I had a really important reason for teaching rocking to them, which is that it's just a shape that we never make together in class. And I just wanted to do something different. And for a lot of them, even just uh, grabbing their foot is really difficult. And so I wanted to have them struggle a little bit. And um, but when I when I, whenever I introduce something brand new, I make such a big deal out of it. It's like when I, you know, like tell my kids, guess what? We're going to go to this new restaurant. Are you ready? You know, like I just make a big deal out of it. And then we go back to doing the hundred and doing all the other things. And that's enough, you know, like it just give them a little sprinkle of something different and that's enough. And it's enough for me too. 80, 20. What, what's your, what's your perfect um, proportion of new versus old i think somewhere around there probably more you know probably more like 90 10 or 95 5 for me mm, <laughs> um, yeah that sounds like a heath lander thing 95 5. yeah <laughs> i think uh you know maybe that's just me but I, I also think that uh there's research on hedonic adaption you know basically the treadmill effect where we get used you know when we something's new it's exciting and then we get used to it pretty quickly so after a while, it just becomes normal. And then you have to have something even more novel and out there to get, you know, the same thrill that you got in the past. And that's why, like, as our income goes up year on year on year and we can buy more things, you know, we're not substantially happier because all we can think like of nothing. is the next thing, you know. <laughs> yes, um, I know. And so one, one part, one small subset of the hedonic adaption literature is, says that, 
we get about the same amount of pleasure from a very small gift as we get from a very large gift. And so you're much better off to get to give someone, if you're going to give someone $100, you're better to give them $10 once a week because like, they'll, in, they'll get 10 gifts, right? And it, it, you'll give them that literally 10 times the pleasure. Um, whereas if you just give them everything all at once, it's like, oh, that's fantastic. But then, you know, the next day it's like, all right, back to normal, uh, I mean, equilibrium state again. And so I think this is the same with variety, that the less variety you have, the more you enjoy the variety that you do have. You know, if everything's all variety all the time, it's like overwhelming and stressful. And if it's still a minority, but like there's a fair bit of variety, it's like it just kind of washes over you. You know, you get used to it. The variety itself becomes monotonous, the fact that there's always variety. It becomes the only consistent thing, which is kind of ironic somehow, paradoxical. But I think when it's when your when your routine is very set, like you brush your teeth every day, same time, and then one day they're out of your normal brand of toothpaste and you get a different brand. You still brush your teeth exactly the same time, but it's a slightly different flavor. It's like, whoa, this is this is wild. This is different, you know, this is exciting. All of a sudden you notice that two minutes that you spend. Whereas in the past, you know, for the past months, it's just doesn't even register any consciousness. So I think, yeah, like you, I would basically, I mean, I like to teach in blocks as well, where you just do like, okay, you've got a supine block of, you know, five or seven exercises you put together, and then a prone block and a sideline block. And uh, I would just basically rearrange those blocks. So it's like you're teaching literally the same exercise as every class, but just in a slightly different, you're teaching the prone service sequence first before the supine sequence this week. Um, and then maybe after six weeks, you change out the prone sequence for a quadruped sequence, you know, like and, and go again. Um, and, you know, maybe what you vary, or, you know, if you're me, maybe what you'd vary is like the soundtrack a little bit, you know, but not much. Like, yeah, I, I think it's, personally, I think, you know, variety is a little bit goes a long way. Yeah, I, I'm on board with that. The other thing that I was thinking about as you were talking about just rearranging the same blocks or maybe changing the music up a little bit, this is something that I talk to our students about all the time, which is, and this is especially true for um, teachers who are just starting out or teachers who are still trying to find their way. In order to get really good at a skill, you have to keep practicing it over and over again. So if you want to get good at teaching an exercise, you have to teach that exercise a lot a lot, a lot. And what happens when you become really fluent in teaching an exercise is that's where you can be more present with your clients and be able to give them refinements and tips that will make their practice better. When your practice is better, their practice becomes better because you're no longer using your mental capacity to think about what words and cues you're going to use. You're able to use your mental capacity to observe your clients and be able to help them Better their better their practice, and also, and you can't do that if you're freshening freshening up your program all the time. And also, you when when you do that, you get to see them repeat the same mistakes or patterns or whatever because you've done that exercise every session for the last X number of weeks. You're like, oh, I know Mary's going to roll her hip forward in this one or whatever, and so you actually start to pick these things up much more because because often. When you're teaching an exercise and you've got, a, you know, say you've got 10 or 15 people in the room, well, you might be helping someone and you notice that Mary's rolling her hip forwards again, but it's like well, she's right across the other side of the room and you're not be able, by the time you get to her, it's like the last half of the last rep. It's like, well, what's the point of correcting her now? And so when you do, when you know that you're going to teach that exercise like every session, it's like, well, you know that it is worth correcting her now because when she comes back tomorrow, we're going to do this exercise again and she's going to remember that you know, that cue that you gave her and that will help her in, in the next session. So I think there's a real value uh, in terms of your own, not just like you said, like your the, the, the cognitive load, but also just the, your ability to detect patterns in your clients because you see them do those same exercises again and again and again. And also in your ability to then uh, give progressive guidance over time to those people because your cues can build on 
you know, what you taught them last time about how to not roll the hip forwards now. Oh, now we can straighten your leg more, see? And now we can reach through the waist more. And now, you know, can you feel that in your butt even more? Yeah, I can. So, like, you can, you can, you can build these things, you know, on each other when you have like multiple reps of teaching the same exercise to the same person in the same class in the same place. I think there's a lot of satisfaction in doing things well, right? So if we're just talking about keeping things fresh, one of the trade-offs in keeping things fresh is that you're never really going to do something well. And you're just going to have a lot of quantity over quality because you're not giving yourself or your clients a chance to refine things. Mm. Well, I think like Natalie, do do you ever go out for dinner? Yes. Do you, do you ever go to the same restaurant again or do you always go to a new restaurant every time you go to dinner? Not only do I go to the same restaurants all the time, but we order the same things all the time. So much so, <laughs> like for instance, there's an Indian restaurant that we love and we, we've gone there since my kids were really tiny. So the owner knows us and is always giving us you know free stuff and letting us jump the, the line and everything. So we went there last month for my son's 17th birthday and he brought his girlfriend and um i said to my son can you please warn her that all four of us are going to order the same thing and that she doesn't have to order the same thing that we order just because we all four order the exact same thing because that's what we like we've gone there for 10 years and we order the same thing every single time. The only thing that changes is our table seat, our, our table. Like we, we move around the restaurant. Otherwise it's the bread, it's the rice, it's the same curry and the same drink all the time. Yeah. Well, how would, how would you feel if you went there next time and they ch- completely changed the menu and now they didn't have that curry or that drink or that I bread? would be gutted and I would break up with that restaurant. Yeah. I think I think a lot of people are like that. I mean, I know when I go out, I mostly order the same thing. At the like, I might sometimes I might order a different entree, or maybe a different bread in a drink or something. But pretty much, it's like if I'm going to this particular restaurant, it's because I like this particular dish at that you know the way they do it. So yeah, like when I go back to a restaurant, if they've taken that favorite dish off the menu, it's like oh well, we're breaking up then. That's it. <laughs> this is over. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I only liked you for your. I have um, broken up with chicken, restaurants. Right? <laughs> exactly, I have broken up with restaurants because they've completely changed the menu. Um, yeah, so I think, and, and I mean, we all know, you know, clients who request those exercises, like, oh, can we do feeding straps, or, you know, can we do mermaids, or whatever. It's like, well, why not do feeding straps and mermaids every class? You know, <laughs> like, just give them give them the things that make them feel awesome. Well, another case in point is, uh, well, uh, another bit of evidence for people who, you know, people who love habits and consistency is if you've ever covered a class, very likely there are going to be people who don't like you because they wish that you were, (laughs) that you weren't there and they miss their, their instructor. In fact, there was, it happens all the time. I teach a more athletic class and I work for a studio that has many different kinds of instructors, but um, I, I happened to teach, I happened to cover a class on a Sunday and I, I was told by the client afterwards that Sunday is stretchy class and I killed them. <laughs> and then she was like, Sunday is usually our stretchy class. And I'm like, sorry, I'm not that instructor. I didn't, uh, and I don't know how to teach stretchy classes. I would classes. be so pissed if that was, if I was that client and I was like, oh yeah, I, I don't, uh, I'm just going to Pilates today, but I'm just going to take it easy. I know it's the easy day. It's a stretchy day. And then like drill instructor Natalie shows up and we're doing push-ups and crying and sweating. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It happens all the time. Um, Not just just if I cover a class, and I haven't covered classes in a long time because I've been really busy, but when I have, when we have, when I have regular studio clients who have never taken my class. They, they're regular members, but they're trying me out for the first time. I've actually had people walk out and leave mid-class because that's not what they expected. Mm-hmm. They were not expecting to gargle their heart. They were expecting to stretch their hamstrings. Isn't it interesting? Because I'm sure 
we've all had that experience of subbing in and then that some students saying some version of, oh, well, that's not how Mary normally teaches us this class, right? You know, she normally does it on this number of springs or she normally does the splits after mermaids or whatever. Um, And it's like, well, that is kind of like a truism in the industry. It's kind of like just everybody knows that when you go in and cover someone's session, you're going to get flack and people aren't going to show up and, you know, it's going to be a tough crowd, (laughs) you know, because it's not what they're used to because it's variety, because it's different. Actually, I thought I I took that for granted, but you know what? I had a coaching call last month with one of our students who is still finishing up the program and she is currently working as a mat instructor and she was feeling really um, discouraged because she she had one person in her class, this is a math class she was teaching, one person who was vocally very critical and then another person who just up and left in the middle of class. And so we were talking through her experience and she was feeling really badly about it. And she was saying, you know, this person, um, I guess I didn't give her enough layers and she was you know, really vocal about it in class. And then I had another situation where a person just up and left. And I said to her, I'm going to tell you right now, that the only difference between you and me is that those things just don't bug me anymore. I still do have clients who are openly constructive and critical in class. And I do every now and then have somebody who will up and leave because it's too hard or it's not what they expected. And the difference between you and me is that it just doesn't bother me anymore. Mm. It truly does not bother me. And I cannot wait for, I told her, I can't wait for you to get to that point. It just takes time. Mm. I think when, I mean, and I've been in that situation too, I think, uh, you know, when you are, you know, moving into a novel situation, like, like subbing in for someone else, taking over their normal class, I think what I like to do uh, and what I've, I think have, has helped me over the years is basically pre-frame it and say, Hey, I'm Raf. I'm taking over for Natalie today. Now I know you love Natalie's class and I'm not Natalie. Um, and, you know, so here's the way I teach and here's what you can expect in the next 45 minutes with me, right? And just to pre-frame it, right? So, and that doesn't always solve all problems, but it's like, it lets them know that, okay, yes, I know this isn't the way you normally do it, but this is the way we're doing it today. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that's good. And I think also when, I mean, I, I, I can't remember the last time I had someone get up and walk out of my Pilates class, but I do get a lot of people, not a lot, but I get a pretty steady stream of people on social media politely or not so politely critiquing my posts or, or whatever, you know, um, and polite criticism is always welcome, uh, and encouraged. Uh, but, and so I think like you have to, well, I've, I've found that for me, I really need to self-reflect each time I receive something like that and go, okay, well, could I have been clearer or could I have phrased that in a, in a way that would be easier for people to take on board emotionally or was I just plain wrong? Was I inaccurate in, in a statement, you know, somewhere or was I vague? Um, and, and if I, if I look at it, if I think, okay, yeah, I was kind of vague on that or I didn't quite, you know, express that very clearly or whatever. It's like, well, then I'll, that's a learning for me. But often it's the case of like, no, I think I'm, that was factually correct what I said. And I think it's just, I didn't say like, you're a bad person if you disagree with me or anything. It's like, just here's what the science says. Uh, yeah, I just ignore it. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you, you, yeah, you, I think you have to reflect and you have to take those opportunities as a, as an opportunity to think like, okay, yeah, could I actually do something better here for this, you know, to, 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 to improve my teaching or, but Sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no. It's just not a good fit with this person. That's not what they're looking for, you know. But and, and I think totally agree. Yeah, and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many people don't like what you do. It matters how many people do like what you do, right? So all you need is ten or fifteen or whatever number of people to come in that class and have a, an amazing time. It doesn't matter if there's thirty thousand people who hate your class and would never come. It's like, well, who cares? You know, like there's 8 billion people who never go to your class. You know, all you need is 15, that's, right? So yeah. So it doesn't matter who doesn't like you really. I think that's that's important. It's really important to to disregard people who don't like you. But you do have to, I think, take 
a moment to reflect and think, okay, did I do something here that could have been done better? You know, like, did I alienate, alienate that person needlessly? You know? Um, so yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I think that's really important. And that was probably missed when I was telling my story about how I just don't care when people walk out of my class. Um, you have to take feedback on board. I think that's really important. All feedback is, is information and information is good. It helps you to decide how yeah. to proceed. Um, and I, and yeah, where I stand is if I have determined after reflecting that the problem is that I'm not the person who I'm covering, I can't change that. And I'm okay with that because, um, I'm not for everybody and everybody's not for me. Yeah. And it it feels really good to be able to get to that place in your career where you can say that with confidence, you know, that like you said, you only need 15 to 30 people in the world who really, really like you in order to be successful in this job. Mm. Uh, so, and ironically, yeah. like I think, and I think this kind of, you know, goes to the variety thing as well, is when we try to you know, please people and do what we think other people, you know, will, will enjoy. Like, ironically, I think often we, we achieve the opposite. We kind of flatten out our attractiveness to people because we kind of smooth off the rough edges of our personalities and, and try and kind of fit, you know, ev all fit ourselves into a mold that's not exactly us. And you know, for example, like super stressing over trying to create all of these new varied programs every day where that's like a, a real hard thing for you to do and doesn't come naturally. Uh, that I think, you know, there, there, it's such a big world and there are so many people and there's people are on such a variety, such a spectrum that like whatever weird ass shit you're into there's someone else that's that's into it as well, right? And so if you're just some kind of like super introverted goth who listens to Nick Cave music whilst doing Pilates, like there are people out there that are going to totally vibe with that, right? <laughs> like, And so why not just be yourself and find those people, right? Because they'll find you if you get this reputation. If, if you have people like storming out of your class because you're playing like, you know, Nick Cave music, music um and wearing you know all black uh, and whatever it's like they'll tell their friends about that that's remarkable right oh i can't believe this bloody plays instructor and then one one time someone's going to perk up there who's she played what oh that sounds awesome <laughs> right and people will seek you out and you'll have people wandering into your class going oh i didn't know there was anyone else who had this same fetish that i have <laughs> And and so I think paradoxically, the more we actually just embrace and sink into who we are, the more you know we we sort out the people, we attract the people who are the same, and we don't have to put on any kind of effort to impress those people because they're just naturally impressed by the fact that you are you. And isn't, wouldn't that be a great place to live? Well, and you know, I guess I guess coming back full circle to the whole idea that Pilates is training and not entertainment, maybe you as a Pilates instructor, maybe your goal is to provide entertainment, maybe, right? So if we look on Instagram right now, I don't, I haven't asked any of these uh, people on Instagram, but I feel like there are a lot of instructors with Instagram accounts who might feel like Pilates is entertainment based on the number of props that they're using standing on a moving bed. <laughs> you know how I feel about that. Maybe they feel I that. I think Pilates on Instagram is entertainment. I think it's, it's specific to the media, to the context. Yeah, I would agree with that. I feel like, well, I do find Pilates on Instagram as entertainment and I use it as such. I use it as an entertainment and inspiration. But I think one thing that I would like to say, um, if I was able to have a conversation with people who are doing lots of interesting acrobatic circus-like things on, on their reels in Instagram is, is your purpose entertainment or is it, for instance, to build balance? 
strength, you know, or strengthen muscles or, or build your balance challenge. Because if it is, there are better ways to do that, right? Which goes back to the whole idea that Pilates is training and not entertainment. Because if you decide that Pilates is training and that you're trying to get people stronger because they want to get down on the floor and play with their kids or garden or be able to play tennis better or those sorts of things, then they're really simple and more effective ways to do that. And that does include consistent exercises and, and oftentimes very simple exercises done regularly, couple sets a week, every week. There's someone I follow on Instagram, um, Mila Alashina. Um, she's, uh, she's got a large number of followers. I, I don't know exactly how many, but like, you know, uh, some multiple of the number of followers I've got, like a hundred thousand or something, some very large number anyway. And her, her reels, as she does, I think the only thing I've ever seen her do is reels. And they're like, I would say like nine out of 10 of her reels are her doing, as far as I can tell, basically this same little warm up routine that she does is like joint rotation. She's, you know, wrists and shoulders and hips and spine and neck and knees and she basically just goes through you know, from one end of her body to the other and does these joint rotations. And it's basically the same like 30 to 60 second thing, like every thing, right? And you know, every now and then there's like, I heard doing the hundred or something, but it's like rare, rare. And basically the only thing that varies from one reel to the next is like what she's wearing and where she is. Like sometimes she's doing it in the snow and sometimes she's on a beach and sometimes she's in her lounge room and sometimes she's, you know. But that's, it's like, oh, there's Mila in the snow doing her same joint rotations in a big puffer jacket. <laughs> and it's like, she's, I don't, I'm going to look her up now and tell you how many followers she's got. But I think this is a great uh, example of, well, it's entertainment, obviously, because I mean, I don't know about you, Natalie, but when I'm watching people on Instagram do Pilates, I'm never doing it along with them, right? It's not a workout. I'm watching. I'm an observer, right? And I think that's how most people interact with it. Um, cause you might be on the bus or at work or, you know, whatever, at dinner, um, hopefully not at dinner on scrolling on Instagram, but, um, so, so it's entertainment, but it's very, very repetitive, her workout. It's very repetitive. And I think over time, the fact that I've seen her do that same workout, like it must be a hundred plus times now, just in different, from different angles or whatever. It's like, it's got me thinking every now and then I think of her and I think, yeah, maybe I should do some stretches, <laughs> you know? It's actually got me, you know, it's kind of got under my skin a little bit and made me think about, you know, doing that type of work more often. Um, and so I think it's entertainment and it's also somewhat, I don't know, motivational, but it's not, I guess it's not training at this point because I'm not training with her. But yeah, I think that's interesting to me that she actually, she, it, it, it is entertainment, right? It's on Instagram. It's a reel. Like that's pretty much the pure definition of entertainment. And it's basically the same thing every day. Same thing. Yeah. So I, I don't, I think we're mistaken to, to, con, to conflate the idea of variety with entertainment. They're not the same thing. You know, we can be entertained by something very, very repetitive. You know, like you with your favorite dish at the Indian restaurant. You know, lamb palak, five stars. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about the things that you post on Instagram, or Adam, the things that he posts on Instagram too, and even Heath has some really amazing posts. I don't see these posts as entertainment. They're entertaining to me, but I'm mostly entertained by the fact that you all are my friends and colleagues and I just like seeing you in my reels and in my, in my scroll. Um, but I wish that all of you would just recycle those posts because I would like, I think we all could use the re repetition, you know, like some of the old stuff that you've posted is just like, let's do it again, say it again, because people need to hear it again. Um, so yeah, like it's entertaining, but it's also educational for me. It's my own training. Like it's, I need to hear about, you know, why it's okay to bend your spine and why it's okay that form isn't going to matter when it comes to injury prevention. I think we all could 
use more of that, more repetition, more consistency. Yeah, well, I do um, recycle my Instagram posts. Um, and it's funny, some like when I say recycle, I don't literally repost the exact same slides, but I'll take the basic message and sort of rework it into a different, you know, slightly different, not message, but just a different present, maybe a different headline or something. Um, so that, that post that I put up today about form doesn't predict injury, like half of those slides were from a post I did six months ago and half of them were new. Just because I guess when I, because I'm dealing with systematic reviews, if there's something I posted six months ago, I always like to check. It's like, oh, well, is there any more recent research that comes out that, that changes this picture, right? So I don't want to be like, oh, here's this 20-year-old thing that's no longer relevant. <laughs> I'll just be reposting it every six months for 20 years. So we have to keep updating. But yeah, I'm, a, I, I'm, I'm with you. And I think there are probably, I mean, I haven't really thought about it like this, but I think they're probably like half a dozen basic messages that I share you know, the human body is robust and resilient, you know, load predicts injury, not form. Specific exercise is generally not any better than just general exercise. Psychosocial factors are just as important, if not more important for predicting injury and pain than biomechanical factors. Just load it is a really good philosophy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, and these messages basically re- repeat, are on repeat. You know, um, yeah. You don't change the outfit; you just change the research, and you just you change you change the heading a little bit. No, it's great. I feel like I feel like um, your message, the your overall message, you know, in on Instagram, in the cert, in the diploma. It's kind of like a brunch menu. I just took my younger boy out for brunch for his birthday. It's like when I was looking at the brunch, it's like flour, eggs, and milk. 5,000 different ways. <laughs> right. Well, when you go to like a Chinese restaurant, they've got like 200 things on the menu, but they're all some version of the same five ingredients. You know, It's true. It's everything's like choose yeah. your beef, chicken, pork, or prawns, you know. That's right. <laughs> or for the vegetarians, we've got uh, bok choy with oyster sauce. Because oysters, oyster sauce oyster is vegetarian. not vegetarian. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Peter Singer. I have to say, I, Peter Singer, the uh, eminent uh, professor of ethics, uh, eats oysters. He's a vegetarian. He wrote um, Animal Liberation, the book. Like he's a very prominent animal rights campaigner. He eats oysters because he reckons they don't have enough of a nervous system to feel pain. So he thinks it's perfectly ethical to eat them. So I mean, I don't particularly have a view on that. I eat oysters. I, I don't actually like oysters, so I, I don't eat them. Not because I think it's bad, but just because I don't take pleasure in it. <laughs> but, huh. um, I I don't really eat oysters anymore, but I do love oyster sauce. I don't yeah. have any, but my mom used to cook with yeah. it all the time. So huh, I learned something new. Thank you. Yeah. Um. All right. So uh, we've kind of landed on uh, variety is not inherently a good, although there is a place for it. And that place, in our view, is probably somewhere between 10 and 20% of the of what you do. And the other 80 or 90% should be basically same, 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 same. Maybe same with a slight cherry on top. Um, and that mean and that allows people to progress and and progress not just physically but also psychosocially to take ownership of their own motivation and become intrinsically, you know, um, you know, drawn to the activity for its own sake and for the reward of doing it and the benefits they get from it. And it also allows us to be a better teacher because we get more reps at teaching the same thing. Therefore we get better at teaching it. And also we just get more reps at looking at that person doing the thing. So we get better at teaching that person that thing as well. Uh, and then we don't have to spend hours stressing out about coming up with all these entertaining classes and we can just teach boring, plain vanilla stuff. I mean, something I haven't, we didn't talk about, but I think it's worth mentioning right at the end here is like, if you look at all of the great coaches of, uh, you know, of, of 
whether it's personal training coaches or people who are trying to lose weight, put on muscle, stand tall or whatever, or whether it's athletic coaches trying to help people improve their performance for sports, like they teach really boring programs. It's just squat, bench press, sit-ups, sprints, you know, basic stretches, like repeated, you know, hard and often. Right? And that's and 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 the the skill in those programs isn't in like gourmet exercise selection. It's in managing the load. It's like how hard do I push this person today, given their overall you know well being and how hard they've been training, whether they've got a competition coming up and their psychosocial health and whatever. It's like do we back off a bit today or do we push a bit harder today? And how hard do I push them over the week, etc. And so that's where the resilient that's where the, the 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 mastery comes in and that and I think the creativity to a certain extent. But like the excess if you looked at like the people who are champion athletes, champion bodybuilders, champion you know, gymnasts, champion, like their training is incredibly repetitive and boring. Mm-hmm. That's how you get good. Well, and I think that's how you get good. And I think one way that you can get better rather than making your program different or rather than changing an exercise, I would argue that a different way to do it that is perhaps better and more simple, simpler is rather than changing an exercise, how can you as a teacher make the exercise more challenging, right? So if you are sick and tired of teaching footwork, how can you make footwork more challenging? If your client has achieved four or five snakes, how can you make snake more challenging, right? Like rather than just putting snake away, having your client forget about snake and then three months later, oh, remember snake, let's try it again. And they're back to square one because they haven't been practicing snake. How can you make snake harder? And I think that's a really, um, it's a really important skill to have because it also ups your skill in teaching an exercise is how can you you know, every time you see an exercise, you're going to have to work with people and be able to scale it down and scale it up. Like that to me is the game. That is the best part of the game. I don't need 50 exercises. I need 25 and I need to be able to teach them really, really well to the people in front of me. And that is what I'm still learning how to do myself, right? Is how do I make these exercise exercises more challenging? I haven't gotten there yet. And for most of us, we haven't. And I think to me, that's like, Oh, I feel so old-fashioned right now, but that to me is like the 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 magical part of this of this work is having a little bit of novelty, but the stuff that you do have, how do you how can you utilize it and just make it better? Mm. I think we do ourselves a disservice when we think we need to entertain people to keep them coming back because what we actually overlook there is the inherent actual power of movement and exercise and Pilates, right? And like we all have experienced that and we all know how amazing it feels when you have a great workout and when you have a, a long series of great workouts regularly, how much um, energy you have and how much better you sleep and your sex life gets better and you can walk down the stairs without your knees hurting and, you know, all of these things. And that's that's the joy and that's the attraction that keeps that addicts people to to doing this. And and I think we we do ourselves and we even do Pilates a disservice when we think we need to do a song and dance routine to to have people come back. It's like no, just do the freaking work and let that be its own reward. And it, it is, and and that's why we're all here in the first place. Ironically, amen. Amen. All right, good talk. Good talk. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. 
And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.